and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by a reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. It's so great to have you back. Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for your well wishes on the air. I really appreciated them. It was a long, because I didn't just get COVID, but then I got a cold right after. Oh, my God. You've so been really been through it. Double, double whammy. Yeah. It was not so fun, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. And could have been worse, like if you weren't vaccinated, you know, (laughs) but it is kind of liberating now where I'm like, I mean, I guess there are, there's still, there's still more things waiting I mean, throughout life, I'm sure, but just immediately in the cold sphere, like I I could get something else because it sounds like there's so much going around, but it's also kind of fun walking around and feeling like it doesn't matter what you do. (laughs) Nothing can stop Kate Wolf. Yeah, <laughs> haven't felt that way for years. So I'm about to live it up this December. I'm so excited. So I spoke last week with Jameson Webster. Mm. And Jameson Webster is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York. And she's the author of the books, Conversion Disorder, Listening to the Body and Psychoanalysis, The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis on Unconscious Desire and its Sublimation. And with Simon Critchley, she wrote Stay Illusion, The Hamlet Doctrine. And she's a frequent contributor to Art Forum, the New York Times, and the New York Review of Books. And she teaches at the New School for Social Research. And the reason I'm giving this introduction now is because I, my voice was so croaky and froggy mm. that I, I didn't end up giving an introduction to our interview because I didn't want to, you know, make anyone more uncomfortable than they already were listening to me try to croak out my questions. So um, so that's uh, just a little bit about her. And then we are talking about her new book, Disorganization and Sex. Mm. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. And and it's a it's a collection of Jameson's essays from the last decade. And a lot of them are on themes such as desire, pleasure, fantasy, and the unconscious. She writes a lot about dreams and you know, this kind of uneasy relationship we have with them in our everyday lives. And also this real guard against the disorganizing force of sex, even on a political level, mm. which of course we've see, just seen with Roe versus Wade being overturned. She has a great piece on the New York Review of Books online about the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, that I really recommend. We talk a little bit about that and just kind of this difference between organization uh, and disorganization and and what can come of disorganization and the kind of like connection between disorganization and and disease or disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm not used to thinking of sex in these ways at all. Um, And I'm someone definitely who always had kind of this bias against like a Freudian obsession with sex and thinking that it was like, Oh, well that was, that was then, you know, that's not that's not true for all time. That was just a Victorian issue. Right. They're like, how can Freud speak to us in the new millennium? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, God, I just stopping and thinking about it for one second. I'm like, I was very stupid in thinking that because it's, it's still like, I do believe that psychoanalysis was onto something 
that's sexist and giant issue. <laughs> yeah, that's why I still recommend that people read um, Freud's th- three essays on the theory of sexuality because it is, I was having a conversation this past week with somebody about fetishes and I was like, yeah, that's actually what the conversation was basically about how um, this one guy is really into feet. And I was like, that is actually one of the most common fetishes. And he's like, oh, yeah, but nobody ever talks about it in that way. And I was like, well, that's what was so great about Freud. And he was like, actually, by looking at the fetish and the quote unquote perversion, we actually see that no sex is actually normal or like organized, maybe to take like the terms that you were using. So I'm excited to hear the conversation. Yeah, great. Well, let's listen. All right, let's do it. Thank you again, Eric for um, being so kind these last couple Anytime. I'm just so glad that you and Medea and both of your families are doing better. Thank you so much, Jameson, for being here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be on the Los Angeles Review Books. So I wanted to start. One of the first things you say is that sex is sometimes felt as a curse, not a cure. And I thought that I definitely see that. And for me, I would locate a lot of that as a cultural byproduct, that there's something about a contemporary response to sex that can be repellent and can be alienating. But I would assume that that observation would go a lot deeper for you and that it wouldn't just be cultural. I thought we could just start there with that idea. No, I mean, it does go deeper, although it is important in Freud that sex and culture and their sort of dialectic with one another and their um, dance is very important. And it's been important to me to kind of go back to the sociological, cultural writings, because I think people forget about it. And I think the image of Freud is this guy who reduced everything to sex, that they forget that, that they forget that the two are in a conversation with one another. I guess the way in which it would go deeper wouldn't be so much that the repressive forces of civilization are at work in the ways in which we get disgusted or repelled by sex or want it to kind of go away and stop nagging at us. But the way in which this is actually very important insofar as it's the like the hard kernel of resistance in the human as psychoanalysis sees it. You know, it's what we have that means that culture just can't entirely impress itself upon us, that there's something in us that resists being entirely shaped from the outside. And, you know, this is, of course, what creates the dance, but it, it should also really be seen as a virtue and something that's trying to wake you up and help you find new solutions than what's kind of on offer. You say that human sexuality is unnatural because it goes beyond the program that can define life. (laughs) And I was curious about, about that thought. I wasn't sure if I quite understood what that means or how it is unnatural to us. I think it's a perspective that is so important to me because... I think that there's a lot of wishes that I hear that we could get back to what's natural or what's unperverted or authentic or, you know, (laughs) before capitalism or after capitalism, some imagination of getting out from under the weight of the present moment and what's so unbelievably torturous and alienating about it. And I think the psychoanalytic message is like, 
is no. <laughs> you know, that there's no going back, there's only going forward. And that part of going forward is wrestling with the sexuality that has created an unnatural relationship between the human being and the environment. And it's a virtue to the extent that it forces us to shape and reshape ourselves and create culture. And at the same time, tortures us, <laughs> makes us miserable and creates incredibly destructive forms. So, you know, I mean, this is about where we are at the moment. And I, I really think that we often fail to see that problem. And there's like a nostalgia, which is some image of going back to a place where things felt good. And the message in analysis has always been, you know, all the way back, it doesn't feel good. And in childhood, especially, which is the first moments of the eruption of a sexuality, whether it's oral pleasure, anal pleasure, whatever pleasure, you name it, that these are going beyond any defined need. You know, I always make the joke that we don't even know how to eat. <laughs> there's like no normal eating. <laughs> And I have patients, you know, that come and they say, like, I just think someone out there has to know how to eat or could tell me how to eat. And there's not, which is kind of amazing when you reflect on it. So what does that mean? Like, we don't know how to eat, like, we don't know how to experience pleasure just in and of itself. And same for sexuality, that it's so daunting to just have this as an experience and that has kind of like no value that we can ascribe to it? Or how do you see that? There's no container. There's no optimal container. And for every person, it's different. I mean, I think this is the beautiful message of psychoanalysis is that every person's pleasure program or pleasure principle is different and differently shaped. I mean, even in one family, this is how siblings can turn out so differently from one another because they had different families, essentially. And that there's no way, there's no natural way to regulate this excess. And even if one finds a form for it, that will only be a form for a time. And things will change. You'll mature, different things will happen in your life that will reset this and make you have to reinvent for yourself a new form to contain the excess of pleasure that's involved in any of the erogenous aspects of life. It's interesting because using this idea of sex as something that's disorganizing, which is, you know, part of the title of your book. And also in the beginning, you describe this beautiful scene with your daughter where she becomes very disorganized, which is what happens with children when they're tired. And that those moments of disorganization are kind of like present opportunities for her to learn how to self-soothe. I thought that was just such like a knockout idea to me that because I think when we're thinking of disorganization and especially in relation to kind of like functioning at a certain level or being mentally ill even, that it can seem like it's a, a very unstabilizing prospect to become disorganized, something that we could even fear, but that, that it also could be a moment to kind of find more nuance of how to be with ourselves or soothe ourselves or kind of it could be a very exploratory moment. I thought it was such a beautiful way to think about sexuality. I think that that's absolutely true. And what, I mean, even with my, with my daughter, and this is my second child after a long kind of gap between the two of them. And 
you know, so I'm a more quote unquote mature parent at this point. And to see the fact that you have to redo every solution you help the child find, you know, so the moment at which she could, she wasn't just a passive object being filled with milk, that she would play at the breast and use the breast at certain moments rather than just, you know, like on a kind of schedule that you imposed on her, that she took the autonomy to say, I need it now. And then at the breast would start playing was so beautiful, but that wore out its welcome within a couple of months, right? And then she needed to have, I need to help her find more space away from the breast. I had to sleep train her in fact, because she was using sleep time as, you know, like an all night buffet. <laughs> and it was the most incredible, you know, in the psychoanalytic language jouissance, it was pleasure pain. She wasn't sleeping because she was, playing at the breast all night long. So I had to then remove her from my body at night, which, you know, is very, very hard. It's a real, it feels like you're really imposing something very strong. You're really taking something away from the child. And within a week, two weeks, maybe she started to sleep on her own and then started to talk in bed. And we forget this, you know, there's something about getting into a place where certain forms of pleasure and pain, we just kind of put our heads down and live in it. And we are very, very afraid to get out. And even as it's disorganizing us, even as it's making us feel sicker and sicker, we're very afraid to move so that we have to find a new solution. And certainly I've also seen that to be the case either as if the use of therapy can become that. <laughs> and it's really, it's very important that analysts not just get into a routine or obsessional ritual of seeing their patients. And then the use of psychopharmacology for the same purposes. You know, you feel a little bit better, but maybe it's not quite working, but you don't want to get off and you're very afraid and you don't want to confront yourself and you don't want to see what's possible beyond a certain stasis that's been set up. And so the disorganizing aspect of sexuality is so important in that respect. And so far as at the very least, it's going to nag you and say, like, this isn't working. And hopefully that that voice can get a little bit louder and its loudness is a message to us. Do you think that that's part of the feeling of the curse of it instead of the cure that it's so difficult to become disorganized or it's hard to move through those kind of sensations? I think particularly today, and I don't, you know, it's not as if I could weigh in on the past or something, but there is something in the short period of time that I've been working in alive, which is the demands that our life be streamlined and optimized and efficient and seamless and like this world where the internet envelops us and <laughs> fills up our phones day and night. There's something today that makes the kind of thing that says this isn't right, feel like a curse rather than something to figure out how to live with. As if, if we could just do things in our most optimal, technologized way, we would be happy. And this vision has become very, very strong. And the machinic aspects of life, I think, are becoming stronger and stronger. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, like as someone who, who does so much, you know, you have private practice, you teach, you write, I could like imagine some article on you, like in New York Magazine, like Jameson Webster, how she gets it done, you know, that there's, <laughs> um, that it's hard to imagine with some imaginary other, you know, that they are just like are really functioning on this optimal level. I think it's funny that you're giving this space for disorganization and all these things and how to manage them when someone might picture you as someone who is not often 
disorganized, who's actually had to build a life that seems like so regimented and organized. Right. I've heard this fantasy (laughs) 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 from the couch. Um, (laughs) I think I have a lot of haste. A friend of mine who's an analyst said this, that there's a function in haste in me. Like I want to get through something very quickly. I want to get to the other side. I mean, even working in the hospitals during the first wave of COVID, it's like I, I went to clap for the workers at the hospital and to see that line, like me here, them there, it's like I have to cross it. So there's there's something in me that's always been that way. And it also a big part of my like very disorganized 20s where I just wanted to like break into the next party. <laughs> I wanted to get into the next club. So the haste is really helpful, but haste is not organized. It's not that like plotting, you know, your way to the line. It's a kind of rush and to kind of use that in the service of the work has been really, really helpful. I mean, I, I think I'm very keen on how much time can be wasted hesitating, and I don't like it. <laughs> so that's the one thing I have on my side, I think, in terms of the productivity. And and that also means that you have to work with bursts of desire. Like, I, I'm not someone who plods away at things. I have to, like, use the burst when it comes. And I, I've gotten good at that. And having a kind of crazy life where you have kids and you have different forms of work means that the burst when it comes and the time that you have, you have to be able to put those two together. But I don't see that as efficiency. I think it's very, very different. I think it's working on another clock. Yeah, I was interested here how many times it comes up that, especially when you're referencing Lacan, that the purpose of psychoanalysis is to put the patient in touch with their desire. And that desire is not one thing necessarily, that it could be continuous and ever-changing. And just even thinking about that in terms of the word being the same for sex and then something much larger, like what we desire, but then this much larger project of what we desire. They seem kind of interchangeable. I wondered if you could talk about that, just how, maybe even how you help patients do that or what that is, like what one would desire as being, you know, what you're kind of looking for if you're in analysis. I mean, it's a word that's really important to me. I mean, in Freud, it's more likely to have been translated as wish So when you read the interpretation of dreams, like everything that Freud means by wish fulfillment is sort of translated by Lacan's desire. And the very important shift, I think, to hear in the way that Lacan reads Freud is to say that this deep unconscious network of wishes and desires that goes all the way back stems from experiences of loss. So you want what's gone or wanting is formed in relationship to pleasures that are diminished or that disappear or things that are lost or the fact that we have to move on from so much in life constantly. And so this forms this incredible unconscious network which organizes your memories, it organizes whatever, the sort of lineaments of your life. And we don't tap into this disorganized organization of the mind. Consciousness is a different space and a different world, actually, for Freud, and it has different laws. And part of what you're doing is you're trying to transpose someone's life into this other space. And to do that, I think, actually provides an enormous amount of energy. 
the ways in which that's held in check by repressions, inhibitions, symptoms. I mean, it is as if we're losing the the storehouse of our life and the energy that's held there. And it is, as a psychoanalyst, a sexual place. It's a sexual energy. It's a sexual field, as it were. I think that this is something that patients very quickly see really does something different in their life than any other, I don't know, (laughs) treatments, places that it really provides them with a different framework and a different kind of life. And, you know, Lacan, people often think of thinking of desire and the object of desire, which is where we get stuck, like, oh, but I want this thing. And it's never an object. It's The objects are avatars of what he says is the cause of desire. Desire is a self-causing form. It's caused by loss. And the object cause of desire is the one that brings it into being, but it isn't the object of desire. It's simply the cause of it. And I think when one understands this, you stop trying to take objects and stuff the desire down, but live more on the side of the desire that can be caused almost exponentially. You know, that's why I say it's really a force because it's a force that you can tap into and that you realize all of the efficiency or all of the fantasies of X, Y, or Z. If I just had that, then things would be okay, which is a very typical obsessional fantasy. If I just had these things lined up in this way, you know, then I would be able to. (laughs) And, you know, you start to realize that there's another way in which you can lean and organize yourself disorganized. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Jameson Webster, author of Disorganization and Sex. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Hilton Alls back with us on the line today. Hilton is a writer and theater critic, as well as a longtime staff writer for The New Yorker, and author most recently of My Pinup a hybrid memoir essay exploring race, desire, and attachment through the spectacular figure of Prince. He joins us today for this week's book recommendation. So Hilton, what book are you recommending? I'm going to recommend anything by Henry Green. He was a British novelist writing between the wars and then after. Read his work on class is among the more brilliant things that I've ever read. I recommend his book, Party Going as a wonderful primer into a particular kind of class differentiations and also gender-generated drama, let's put it that way. <laughs> but it's a great novel. How did you first become acquainted with with the novel? Like, where did you first find it? I think as a kid, I was reading an interview with Truman Capote, and he mentioned him as being one of his favorite writers. And I used to sort of do that a lot, where if one writer mentioned another, I would read that writer. So I think it was through some interview of Truman Capote's, actually. It's a great way to build a personal reading syllabus. Just read what other writers say that you should be reading. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes your kind of graduate school, you know? Yeah, exactly. And can you give us the title and author one more time? Party Going by Henry Green. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Hilton Alls, author most recently of My Pinup. Listening to the LARB Radio Hour. 
We now return to our conversation with Jameson Webster, author of Disorganization and Sex. Maybe this is missing the point to ask, but like, what is an example of a desire that you would help a patient find? What does that sound like in uncovering it when someone has realized their desire? I'm trying to think of a clinical example that won't, won't give something away for the viewer. So I think of a really old example of a patient I worked with a long time ago when actually one of my first in graduate school. He had been around during political turmoil in his youth, and he was both really, it must have been exciting in some way because, you know, things were happening on the streets and all the adults are talking about this and it's on the news all the time and it's something you don't entirely understand and it's probably something given the time that he was born that they didn't really talk to him about. It wouldn't have been the way in that atmosphere. And it was terrifying because it would have been terrifying. People are dying. People are doing strange things in protest. People are, you know, like setting themselves on fire and all of the rest of it. Police are doing things. Who's the enemy? Who's involved? All of this would have been a situation of both excitement and terror. And in a way, he had lived his life both in pursuit of similar conditions, a similar kind of agon in his life. He wanted a fight. He wanted to feel like he was involved in something deep and meaningful and transgressive and running away from it simultaneously. And then, of course, all of the avatars of this within his sexual life, you know, what's difficult about being with another person, how messy they are, how violent it can get, how complicated relationships are, was in another place where it was both pursued and run away from. And so he lived this kind of rapprochement. And to kind of unlock some of these memories and also help him articulate what was exciting, what was frightening, what's interesting, what's confusing, what it had to do with his love for his parents, his disappointment in them, I think helped him move towards it in a more, I don't know, willful manner so that he could take from it what he needed to take from it. It's interesting because one of the main themes that we talked about was shit, because one of the forms of protest was to smear feces. You know, like that's something that protesters do. And <laughs> his own relationship to feces and bathrooms and shit and smearing and mess. You know, he both was very interested in this and totally terrified of it. So he's also a very good example for the organized disorganized because, you know, probably he tried to organize some of this out of his life, whereas it was actually really exciting to him that someone could be so angry or so politically activated that they would smear their shit all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. It kind of brings me to um, a question that I had, like that when we're talking about sex, seems like often we're just, it's a way to talk about the body. I wondered for you how much that comes up, that sex is just, can be a, um, a pathway to get to the body, which is often like not, welcome in the conversation of popular culture. And it seems like this hindrance. I think we have a really hard time with the body in this day and age. On the one hand, there's kind of body stuff everywhere. I mean, with this like sea of bodies on Instagram and like so much about beauty or body modification or whatever it is. And then all of the discourse on wellness, you know, and all the stuff about being healthy and being well and 
listening to your body. And then on the other hand, I agree with you. I think it's more screened out or as screened out as, you know, I don't know, 1950s total repressive society. So the, and this contradiction must be, I think is hard to live with. Because at least in the 1950s, you had this prohibition that said, you know, we don't talk about these things. This is unacceptable discourse. Now it's both acceptable and still prohibited, which makes it very hard to locate what's the intimacy with respect to one's body or what's the shame with respect to one's body that isn't being allowed space. And sex as like, I don't know, sexual activity with another person used to be a way to talk about that because you're instantly, you know, within that domain of shame, prohibition, transgressive experience, extreme states. But even now it's as if we're allowed to talk about that as if it's the same as talking about making dinner. And yet something is, something's left out. And I see this in analytic work because if it was easy to talk about, then I wouldn't be sensitive to it. I wouldn't wait for it. And I wouldn't see how long it takes for people to actually kind of surprise themselves and reveal what they need to reveal about their own experience of their bodies. And the inefficiencies of one's body, I think, are also really, really hard to speak about still. You know, like what isn't working, what feels like it's bottoming out or depleted or <laughs> withering or getting old or whatever it is. I still think that we can't, we don't really have a huge space for these things. Right. Well, it seems that it's about trying to optimize or organize the disorder more than kind of give voice to the disorder as it is, it would seem to me. I guess along those lines, I'm I was reading your piece in the New York Review of Books recently about abortion and you write about kind of walking through patients through their choice to either have a child, not have a child, dealing with infertility. And that seems like such a hard position because there is some, I mean, in the fact of something like infertility, like there's the body just doesn't cooperate. And also speaking of desire that sometimes people can be so conflicted over having a child and how I was just curious about how you come to that decision with people or that acceptance. One of the things that's been important in the past period of time with respect to these questions and that I've learned a lot from patients is to really realize how new family planning is. I mean, contraception is post-World War II invention. And then the ideas of family planning with the kind of pushing back against religious dogmas about that one only has sex for procreation and then not using contraception, which still exists, of course, but within like the certain Western frame. Space has been made for the idea that one can plan a family. <laughs> But once that idea comes to the surface, then the idea is, okay, well, how do you know, right? Because it's not just something that happens to you. And we have no idea. We have no idea. This is really, really hard. And then all of the kind of limits of biology are running up against the fantasies of, of this and the procrastination of it. So we really just don't know. And I, I see people suffering a lot. And it's not just that we don't know, but then you're told that you should know. Like you should know like, oh yeah, I definitely want to have a family. But what if you don't really feel that? Then how are you supposed to make that decision? You know, and then there's all the moments in which the decision is made for you, whether you become pregnant or you don't become pregnant or you can't become pregnant. 
So it's really an arena where one is meeting up against the limits of the body, spaces of technology and the confusion that they induce and the new forms of pleasure and pain that every technology introduces into the world. Freud had this joke about the fact that if they hadn't invented the train, then we wouldn't have had invented the telephone so that we could call people who went really far away. You know, every technology has to produce a new technology to serve the miseries that the former technology creates. And so I've just spent a lot of time with people. And a lot of what I have to do is, I think, stop in its tracks all the discourse around this that really makes them feel an added degree of suffering because they're confused. You know, it says to them they should know or they should do all of these things that will make it possible for them to know or they should take all of these steps. And which is to say there's no right way to do this. I mean, we can say that. On the other hand, we are suffused with all of what culture tells us. I think the problem is only going to become harder. And it's also a byproduct of feminism, which is very, very important, which is that women enter the workplace. But to say that a woman can do it all, that you can have a job and have a child and be the primary caregiver for that child is impossible. It's completely impossible. So we have now heaped onto the shoulders of women a very serious impossibility that they suffer enormously from in terms of guilt because you can't do it all. You just can't. So, and, you know, I mean, obviously in the United States, the provisions are in terms of, you know, helping people with childcare, helping people with paid maternity leave are abysmal. So there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of confusion, and then there's the added sort of political problems on the table of which the overturning of Roe v. Wade was just the icing on the cake. And it was important to me in that piece to just talk about how hard it is to make choices, how hard one any choice is in any given life, and how ununderstandable they are from the outside. That you can't know much about what it takes for someone to come to the choices that they make. And that I think the psychoanalyst has the rare glimpse of all that it takes to come to a point where you make a decision about something so pivotal in your life to not have children, to have children, to abort a child, to pursue reproductive technologies and so on. And the other thing that really got me, which I didn't talk about much in the piece, was that I spent a long time online looking at blogs for women suffering from infertility. I mean, there's lots of them. And it is a place of so much pain. I have never seen so much pain in my life. And the fact that there isn't, you know, <laughs> I don't know, there aren't psychoanalysts. I mean, we should create a whole profession to kind of walk with these women through these experiences and to help them because I, the pain on the page was almost unbearable. Yeah, it's such a consequential decision or decision that's made for you. And it seems to me that you don't talk about this so much, but that the question of reproduction would seem to haunt sex for a lot of people. And at this point, the control by the government over reproduction would also seem to haunt sex or try to be speaking in some way to sex. I wondered if you thought about that with the overturning of Roe, that it somehow is a prohibition not on women's bodies as much as it is on sex. Absolutely. You know, I kind of mentioned my experience of giving birth, which I found utterly misogynistic, <laughs> including the fact that I was, you know, labeled advanced maternal age and I was treated completely differently. And I ended up in a series of 
induction procedures that I think are barbaric at best and unnecessary. And this was coming from my experience, but the place where medicine, government, and the sexual body are close, I think, is where the most egregious harm is done. And that obviously is the case around the question of abortion. But other issues that we think about today from like the regulation of trans people's access to surgery or to the hormones that they need. I mean, there's something that at this place where the three come together, medicine, medical technology, the sexual body and governing governmental power is the place where I think we hurt people the most. We want to pin them down. We want to regulate them. We want to say what can and can't be done because there's something terrifying, I think, for us as a species. Do you think that, uh, I hate to ask a question kind of like, where do you see us going from here? How do we move forward? Um, What's the path? But is that something that you as an analyst think about and think about, oh, if, if more people were in analysis or if more people were asking these questions, the world would be such a different place? Or do you feel like that's just so unlikely it doesn't occur to you often? When you said that, it made me immediately think of Freud's line at the end of Civilization and Discontents, where he says, I, I have to choose not to value any particular manifestation of sexuality in a given culture above any other. Like, this is the total neutrality of the analyst. Like, you know, this is what we have. It's neither better nor worse. You know, so there's that. That's my immediate, like, knee-jerk reaction that I have to take this neutral stance at the same time that things are so bad right now. And so it's hard not to want to sort of see something. I mean, when I say things are so bad right now, I, I recently wrote a piece for the New York Times on the suicide statistics for teenagers and suicidality. And this really strikes me that something's very wrong, (laughs) that we have a 60% increase in suicides amongst teenagers. I mean, it just shows you that, you know, that's the moment, right, of the sexuality opening the person out into the world, that they're able to unconsciously sift culture, which is why you have these incredible cultural productions during that sort of moment of early adolescence into the 20s. Or they reach the deadlocks that we've set up for them. And they must be hitting something in our society that's saying it's better to jump off of a building or hang yourself. And that's one of the reasons they're dying more is that they're using these extreme means. And they must be touching something that's pushing them towards this form of acting out. So, I mean, I I really, I think there's something at this moment that I hope we're going to transition out of. I do hear in my younger patients, when you give them some time and space to articulate what they feel is wrong, an incredible brilliance and sensitivity and feeling about the world that it took me much longer to have access to, even if I wasn't as suicidal as they are. And so that gives me a little bit of hope that on the one hand, you have these extraordinarily sensitive and intelligent teenagers and all the information that's piling into them that I wouldn't have had access to can have some use if you can slow down what they're experiencing as a world without an exit ramp that isn't a very extreme one. And that's something I think we all feel. It's like we all want an exit ramp, but we don't want an exit ramp out of living. We want an exit ramp to life. So I I don't know. I hope that they solve the problem for us. Gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Maybe just in closing, 
do you ever like advise patients on allowing sexuality to enter their life maybe in ways that can feel more like a cure? Absolutely. I mean, I, if it's not a direct, <laughs> like, you know, come on, it's certainly there in how I, I listen. And people can get annoyed with psychoanalysts because we don't give advice, but it's not so hard to pick up on what we're interested in, that we hear your dreams or that we get really, you know, our ears perk up and we start asking all kinds of questions about something that you start thinking or something that you start doing or something that you start to get in, allow yourself to get invested in. And you have a sense very quickly of that's where we think it's at. You can push back against that, you know, and you don't have to go there, but we're certainly, it's certainly obvious at least what we're listening to. And all of these little crevices and cracks and places where sexuality and desire emerge are certainly a place where I start to push in hard and say like, aha, <laughs> you know, tell me more about that. With a sense of pride too, you know, like if someone comes in and they haven't had dreams in a long time or at all, you know, you like, you know, hooray. <laughs> I think that that's the greatest part of supporting somebody and supporting them for the long haul. I mean, that's the other thing about analysis is we're in it with you for the long haul. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That was Jameson Webster. Her latest book is Disorganization and Sex. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.